Hello and welcome to this episode of The Jewish Views with Phil Dave, Diana Toman and Tony Honigberg. Coming up, we'll be speaking to the Chief Executive of the Jewish Leadership Council, Simon Johnson, about the ongoing saga with Labour and problems of anti-Semitism. We'll also be hearing from comedian Howard Cohen, who's going to be telling us about his forthcoming show, Let's Be This. We'll find out more about Howard's particular style of comedy a little later on. And we'll also be speaking to Jennifer Jankel, who's the Chair of Trustees at the Jewish Music Institute. She'll be telling us all about the summer programme into the autumn programme for the JMI. But before all of that, with a roundup of the main Jewish news stories from the past week, welcome back, Vivian Krieger. And we begin with Jeremy Corbyn trying to face down widespread criticism of his 2014 visit to a Palestinian cemetery, which he said was to promote peace in the Middle East. The Labour leader appeared to pay tribute to terrorists by holding a wreath. He claimed the cemetery ceremony had been to commemorate those killed during an Israeli airstrike on the PLO's offices in Tunis in 1985. In a new development, Mr Corbyn may face a parliamentary investigation for not declaring the controversial trip, with his office declining to say who paid for his flights and accommodation. And we'll hear more from Simon Johnson of the Jewish Leadership Council later in the programme. Mr Corbyn faced further criticism after a picture emerged of him in the Daily Telegraph, apparently from 2016, making a salute linked to the Islamist organisation known as the Muslim Brotherhood. A spokesman for the Labour leader said he'd been standing up for democracy. But Jewish News columnist Majid Nawaz said the Muslim Brotherhood was to Muslims what the BNP are to the English, bigoted and dangerous. Senior Labour MPs, including Dame Margaret Hodge and the Momentum founder John Landsman, will feature in the second annual one-day conference run by the Jewish Labour movement, in which the anti-Semitism crisis will be covered extensively, although discussions will be widened to include Labour politics, foreign policy, arts and culture. The conference will be on the 2nd of September and tickets can be bought online. In other news, a silver pocket watch with Hebrew numerals that belonged to a Russian Jewish man and was recovered from the Titanic after the 1912 disaster is expected to fetch more than £15,000 when it's auctioned. Sinai Cantor, who was 34, was hoping to start a new life in America with his wife Miriam. She survived, but he perished, and his personal effects, including the watch, were eventually handed over to her. The auction will be in Texas at the end of August. And finally, two Israeli investors have managed to scoop an investment of £125,000 on the BBC's Dragon's Den programme. Yossi Romano and Ziv Leinwand pitched their breezy device, which aims to protect babies in their prams from pollution by filtering ambient air and then blowing clean air into the child's breathing space. They were inspired, they said, because of pollution in North London's Finchley Road. Viv, thank you very much indeed. Let us begin this episode of The Jewish Views in traditional fashion with a look over the Jewish paper this week. Oh, wait, hang on a second. We can't because those observant of you out there, and I don't mean observant in terms of religiosity, may just have noticed that there is actually no Jewish newspaper this week. Fear not, it's only for one week, but... We are going to instead review some of the big stories that have made it online. And so to do that, we have got online editor Jack Mendel and we've got features editor Fran Wolfish. Hello, both of you. Well, we've explained there is no paper this week, so therefore we're not going to ask what's on the front page. So instead, let's start with the biggest story online this week. The biggest story online this week was an exclusive story we actually had. We spoke to Anki Spitzer and Ilana Romano, who were the wives of Israeli athletes 
murdered in the 1972 Munich massacre. And this comes, of course, yet again, uh, there's a Labour anti-Semitism story, but this one has kind of attracted the, the, the whole world's attention with even Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli Prime Minister, weighing in. And this has kind of sent reverberations across the world. The two wives of these Israeli athletes who were murdered came out and they criticised Jeremy Corbyn for being cruel and malicious, among other things. This is obviously off the back of him taking part or allegedly, as he would say, taking part in this wreath-laying ceremony. Yes, if you can get to the bottom of whether he was there or not or if he took part in it or not, then you're you're better than me because this week he, he, of course, came out and said that he was there and he was present and there were pictures of him laying this wreath, but he didn't know if he was involved or not. Quite how you can not know whether you're involved in something like that, I don't know. But it, it, it certainly caused a lot of confusion and anger right across the Jewish community. And it just feels as if this story is just never going to end somehow, doesn't it, Fran? Because I know that sort of from the paper's point of view, all that seems to have been on the front page, certainly for the last few weeks, and I know there's no front page this week, but for the last few weeks anyway, it's only ever Labour and ongoing problems with anti-Semitism. It's just a never-ending saga. You know, I actually thought we'd hit a new low when we had to go ahead and do that joint front page to make an impact, to really make a statement and say, Jeremy Corbyn is a threat to our community. And this week, I actually feel like we've gone underground. We've gone below the new low. It can't actually go down any further. And yet that's exactly what's happened when I read about him participating or not participating or being involved or not involved in the wreath laying ceremony, it actually made me feel positively ill. Very strong wording, but we do need to stress in the absence of a certain Mr. Corbyn that he did say in no uncertain that the reason for his any involvement in it, whether he was involved or not involved, is apparently down to him. But any involvement he did have was purely to promote peace in the Middle East. But of course, this is not necessarily washing with everyone. And speaking of wash, the truth is that the website is a bit of a wash with stories around this very subject. Yes, it seems every, I would say every day, but it's more like two or three times a day, a new politician comes out saying that he should resign. A new a new person comes out and, and criticises him for, for something else that he's done. And there seems to be a radio silence on his behalf. He does the old Sky News interview, he writes the old Guardian op-ed, but he doesn't appear to be willing to just sit down and be direct and tell the people that have concerns over his actions and his words in the past and, and be straight with them. And that's, that's, I think, the fundamental of it, that there is no real communication. There's no real strong message that he has any kind of regret for what he's done. Okay, well, look, as again, as I have to stress, in the absence of Jeremy Corbyn, all we can do is take the words that he has either said to other media sources or to this very programme in the past. But who knows? I dare say we'll find out more in the weeks to come because so far we have throughout this whole year. Anyway, you mentioned before Benjamin Netanyahu. You said that he's also managed to get involved in the Labour anti-Semitism row. But one person who has been speaking out more against Benjamin Netanyahu is Ronald Lauder, who's saying that Israel may very well be asking for trouble. Yes, he did. He came out this week and he said that the Israeli leaders are sowing division with their new nation-state law and it's provoking a summer of disharmony. And this is a guy who has previously 
arguably supported Netanyahu and helped him get elected. And even he, uh, you know, a, a world Jewish leader, is coming out against the Israeli prime minister. And of course, it comes out just after Netanyahu himself criticised Corbyn on Twitter for his laying of the wreath. It's almost like our politics has been Trumpified, that things are being done on Twitter now. Well, I think that one of the the biggest concerns that probably people have with global politics at the moment is it seems to be more about squabbling amongst themselves and less about actually doing what all politicians are put there to do in the first place, which is to guide countries that they they rule and to work for the people as opposed to against them, which does appear to be quite a, a major issue for global politics at the moment. But I don't believe that on a 45-minute podcast we've got enough time to discuss that. Instead, how about we move on to something a little lighter because otherwise we are going to run the risk of descending into a spiral of, well, frankly, not very nice news. On the plus side... Judge Rinder, Robert Rinder, to those who may very well know him, from his daytime show on ITV. And my goodness me, what a programme that is. He's been on Who Do You Think You Are, hasn't he, Fran? He has. And actually, I think it's fair to say it's one of the most talked about shows this week. It really has had an impact. Obviously, I had to watch the episode before it aired and speak to Robert Rinder. But I watched it again. And I have to say, it made me feel emotional all over again, even though I've even seen it. Judge it obviously got him quite emotional as well, because well, he, he reacted yes. quite emotionally throughout discovering what he discovered. I mean, it even got to the historians and the genealogists. That's when you really know that you've, you've hit something that... I mean, his journey was really quite extraordinary. If you haven't seen it yet, please do watch it on iPlayer. But Robert finds out basically more about his grandfather, Morris Malenicki, who was a Holocaust survivor, and also about his great-grandfather, Israel Medallia. On the one side, you have Morris, whose parents and brother and sisters were all murdered in the Holocaust. And obviously, that was tragedy in itself. But he also then discovered exactly how it was that Morris came to survive, how he ended up at a, a sub-camp of Buchenwald and was forced into the most backbreaking, horrible, horrific labour in terrible conditions. And quite amazingly, in the middle of the programme, he actually meets up with Sir Ben Helfgott, who actually knew Morris personally and was there with him at the time. So that story in itself was incredible. On the other hand, you have Robert also exploring his great-grandfather's wartime past. He served in the First World War and the rumour in the family was that he had shell shock. But actually, as it turned out, he never saw active service. He actually suffered from mental health problems, something which is very much an issue of today and something that needs to be talked about more. And, you know, reflecting on it, when I spoke to Robert Rinder, he said how it had, you know, mental health had impacted his family. He felt part of that discussion now and believes that it is something that needs to be more openly spoken about. Indeed, it does. OK, well, we've got time for one more very quickly. So let's shoehorn this in as we look at what can only be described as possibly a bit of a soggy watch. Well, it is a soggy watch, but it's one with a really incredible story. It's a silver pocket watch, which got beautiful Hebrew numerals around it. it. Actually belonged to a Russian immigrant. Quite tragically, he wanted to start a new life in America. And he ended up going down with the Titanic on April the 12th, 1912. It was recovered along with his body and other possessions that belonged to him and returned to his wife, who did go on to survive. 
she was one of the women and children loaded into the lifeboats. And I believe she was actually on one of, I think, the very last lifeboat that made her out. So quite incredible that she survived. Incredible that she had this possession returned to her. It's been in the family for quite a few years and they now feel it's obviously time to take it to auction. But an incredible piece of Titanic history. It certainly is. And I think that there'll be some forgiven for thinking that there was no Jewish link to the Titanic. But of course... All communities, all different types of individuals were affected by it. And this is proof of that further. Absolutely. And, you know, he wasn't a first class passenger either. He was a second class passenger and very tragically went down with the many others who did across all the classes. Goodness. Okay. well, there you go. Unfortunately, that is all we have in terms of time to look through some of the big stories from this week. But thank you both very much indeed to Fran Wolfish and Jack Mendel. Now, ordinarily, I would be telling you at this stage, you could always go and pick up your copy of the Jewish News every Thursday across London. But as I mentioned at the start of this, there is no paper this week. So instead, make sure you head to jewishnews.co.uk to catch all of the big news stories that have made the Jewish press from the past week. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. And as you've been hearing, not only on this show, but let's be honest, over the past year or so and then some, of course, the ongoing issue with anti-Semitism in the Labour Party continues to rumble on. This week, we learned that leader Jeremy Corbyn has said he is not going to apologise for attending a controversial event at a Palestinian martyr's cemetery because he was trying to, quote, promote peace in the Middle East. Well, of course, Jewish leaders have not quite seen it in that way. And to tell us why that is the case, we can now speak to Chief Executive of the Jewish Leadership Council, Simon Johnson. Simon, thank you so much for speaking to us. Again, it does seem that this is just never going to end, really. Well, Phil, you're absolutely right. This has been a story that has virtually dominated the news agenda throughout the month of August. And for the last few days, the main political story that's been going on has been around Labour and anti-Semitism and specifically about the controversy generated by the revelation of historical pictures of Jeremy Corbyn at at a what is now notorious wreath-laying ceremony uh, in Tunisia. It's absolutely extraordinary that we just don't seem to be coming to any conclusion. It seems, if anything, we're getting further and further into the mire. And I don't quite understand why that it seems to be rumbling on because one of the things that I've heard from several people is, oh, if this was any other religion, it would never have been allowed to go on as long as that. Now, of course, we don't know if that's true or not, but it certainly does feel as if we are, I suppose, not being given the the preference that it should be given. I don't know that that's, that's how I would describe it. I would say that this is actually going towards Jeremy Corbyn's judgment and competence as leader of the party. I mean, a strong leader of the party determined to form a government would see that this was a crisis affecting their party and would take, you would have hoped, the necessary steps to deal with it as swiftly and as effectively as possible without damaging the party. The fact that they haven't dealt with it, the fact that they met with the Jewish community representatives a number of months ago and agreed to zero out of six of the items that we asked them to adopt in order to deal with anti-Semitism. The fact that they didn't adopt the IHRA definition at the National Executive Committee meeting when they had the chance to do so, all of these things have contributed to the fact that this story is still running. And I 
I'm strongly of the belief that if Jeremy Corbyn had been determined to deal with it and had been a stronger leader with better political judgment, he would have dealt with this issue months ago and we would be talking about other things now. Though, of course, he has said in his defence that he is vehemently against all forms of racism and would do all that he can to ensure that people don't see the Labour Party as racist. Well, he has said that, but unfortunately, his actions have not backed that up. And there was evidence of that just over a week ago when his deputy, Tom Watson, put his head above the parapet and expressed critical comments about the way that the Labour Party had dealt with anti-Semitism. And Mr. Watson himself was subjected to a torrent of vile anti-Semitic and other forms of abuse on social media and elsewhere. And unfortunately, the leader did and said nothing about it, did nothing to defend his deputy. And so I think we have heard plenty of words from Jeremy Corbyn, but we just have not seen the action that we requested. And we are not seeing the incidents of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party be dealt with as they arrive in a strong fashion by a strong leader. Do you think he's digging his own grave or do you think he will continue to be leader? And is it there a movement now for another Labour Party? Look, I mean, those are big questions. And the role of the Jewish community is not to get involved in politics of that nature. What we're trying to do, Tony, is to ensure that the Labour Party and the Labour movement uh, sees a significant reduction in the incidents and the circumstances and the levels of anti-Semitism. I think that what, what you're seeing is that Jeremy Corbyn is an ideologue. He's absolutely committed to the things that he believes in, the principles that he has. And part of that, I think, is not apologising for anything that he's done and not believing that in any way that he's wrong. In that respect, that's why I have described him as continuing to act like a backbench MP rather than as leader of the opposition and somebody who aspires to form the government because somebody who aspires to form the government, particularly on behalf of the Labour Party, a party which has traditionally been a, a safe home mm. and a proud home for many, many Jewish activists, workers and, um, and politicians, anybody who is a Labour leader would, would have dealt with this issue months ago and come to an accommodation that would have given confidence to the Jewish community. And for some reason, Jeremy Corbyn and the people around him have not allowed that to happen. He is so unwilling to compromise his principles. I mean, that's why a lot of people like him. But on this issue, he seems so unwilling to clamp down on the anti-Semitism that has really flourished under his leadership. And I don't know whether that's because he doesn't want to upset his fellow travelers, whether he believes that the people who have been expressing these things are the very people who have helped him to become the leader, or whether he believes that those are at the core of his own beliefs. But for whatever reason, the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn's leadership has become a place yeah. where Jewish people do not feel comfortable. And the, unfortunately, neither he nor the people around him have taken the firm and simple actions that we believe can be taken to reduce the levels of anti-Semitism. Perhaps you'd be so kind as to explain to anyone who is listening to this just why it is that the Jewish community has been so offended by certainly this latest event that has come to light. Even though we know that it happened a considerable number of years ago, it's not the point. We do want to understand why it is that Jeremy Corbyn attending this wreath-laying cemetery, even though he claims he had no involvement in it, why it has caused us so much angst and so much trauma, I suppose, continuing on from everything else that's happened. Well, there's two elements, Phil. First is the, the, the accusation. The accusation is that Jeremy Corbyn participated in a wreath-laying ceremony at a memorial to 
the people who were responsible for one of the most brutal acts of terrorism in modern history, the murder of 11 Israeli Olympic athletes in the Olympic Village during the 1972 Olympic Games. Now, that incident was traumatic for Israelis. It was traumatic for the Jewish community. It was traumatic for the sporting community. And it was a deeply disturbing episode. So the the idea that a member of parliament, as he then was, should be present at a wreath-laying, touched, in my view, the rawest of raw nerves with the Jewish community. Then the second issue is it's compounded because he has then made four different attempts to explain what he was doing at that particular incident. It ranged from denying that he was there to saying that he was honoring something else to saying that he was present but didn't lay a wreath, and then finally saying, well, yes, he did lay a wreath, but it wasn't to those people. So you've got a situation of of a apparent glorification of a tragic and brutal terrorist act, coupled with a really ham-fisted attempt to try and explain away his presence there that's led, I think, to this being such a story and that's causing such upset, not just in the Jewish community, but more broadly... Uh, this week. And how would he remedy this action? Is there anything he could do or say that would appease the community at large for what he has done in the past? Look, he, I, I said before that he, he, the very minimum that he has to do is apologize, a genuine apology for the acts that he's taken. But on top of that, he needs as leader of the party to ensure that the party which he leads takes the six reasonable steps that the Jewish community submitted at the end of March and at the meeting in April that would help to reduce the levels of anti-Semitism within the party. That's what we want. The things that we put forward were perfectly simple. They were perfectly achievable all of which would have helped to build confidence with the Jewish community. The fact that we are so many months later and none of those steps have been taken is what's contributing to an utter lack of confidence in his leadership and his ability to be able to address the anti-Semitism in the party. Simon Johnson, Chief Executive of the Jewish Leadership Council, thank you very much indeed for speaking to us on The Jewish Views. Thank you. If you would like to get in contact about any of the stories you've heard on this show, then we'd love to hear your Jewish views. Email studio at jewishviews.co.uk. On Facebook, go to facebook.com forward slash the Jewish views. On Twitter, we're at Jewish views UK. Or you can go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. UK. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News, and I'm now talking to producer Howard Cohen. Howard has a decade-long career in the television industry, and he's invented many programs as well as working on hits like Impractical Jokers and The Paul O'Grady Show. Now, Howard has moved from behind the camera to centre stage in front of the camera for his new multimedia comedy show, Let's Be This. Hello, Howard. Hi. And welcome to The Jewish Views. Now, tell me a little bit about you. Firstly, let's go into your history before we talk about your new show. Well, I started work in television in a basement burning DVDs back when people used to burn DVDs. We don't have to do that anymore now. People don't need many DVDs. It was a slightly depressing job, if I'm honest with you. 
I decided that I wouldn't sit in the basement and rot. I would learn how to use the cameras and the editing kit. And I, I did that. I, I made some short films. This was back when YouTube was in its infancy, say 10 years ago. And the films did okay. I got nominated for like a London short film festival, which for a guy who was doing this in his spare time was pretty cool. How did you get involved in things like Impractical Jokers? And well, so this is, yeah, so, so, so the, 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 the short films I was making, I ended up getting a, a series on a, on a small channel with some, you know, the, these kind of comedy actors that I was working with, some really good friends, Matt and Rob and Marco and Gooders and, and some of these people that I was working with. We managed to get this series away and then they said, maybe you should stop burning DVDs, get out of the basement. And I started working on the shows and uh, I worked on lots of shows you know where and I kind of came a researcher on the Paul O'Grady show where I met my my TV dad a man called Bert who famously Paul would shout to off screen during the show but very much you know enjoyed what I was doing and, and really helped me progress my career and we ended up working on lots of different things together when he started his own company including Impractical Jokers and a lovely sketch show and all sorts of stuff and then I've kept going in television ever since. So, so comedy has been your forte? I mean, it's an obsession. I remember when I was five years old, my, I've got much older brothers, and they were watching The Young Ones, and I remember they told me that I was too young for it, so they, they, told, me, they told me to go and leave the room. And I remember sitting in like the corner behind the, behind the, the, room, behind the, you know, the chair watching it, going, oh, this is amazing. And like the talking rats and the peas that talk <laughs> and stuff. And, and so I've, I've just been, my dad, massive fan of, 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 of comedy, you know. I remember I'd buy my dad every birthday, I'd buy him a VHS of something like Only Fools and Horses or Forty Towers, partly because I knew he'd like it, but partly because I wanted to watch him. Comedy is, yeah, I, I, I honestly don't know what I'd do without it. All right, be now, bored, be very well, bored. It's always good to make people laugh. Good I mean, therapy. I can't tell you a commodity on earth that has more value in some ways. And, and, it, and it's such a weird, when you act, think of what you're doing physically i very rarely have a moment when i i physically can't stop laughing but when it does happen it is a most incredible experience it's such fun i don't think anything can beat it perhaps sex but i think that comes with more bad news <laughs> good lord <laughs> more problems <laughs> tell me tell Cosmics me a comedy <laughs> <laughs> i would yes well so, it's easy it's easier to do on your own so yeah. <laughs> we're not going down that route. <laughs> I don't know how to respond to that. Tony, over to you. <laughs> tell, tell us a little bit more about this show then. Let's be this. Where did the title, well, where mean, did the title come the whole from? The thing, yeah. It all started with a conversation with my producer friend, Nikki. And, you know, I think the name, I don't want to ruin the show because hopefully it will run for years and years and many people will come and see it. I think it kind of, it, 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 it's a way of saying be yourself, but maybe slightly more dramatic. And I think, you know, what the show kind of gravitates to suggest is that we are defined, our legacies are defined by something about us, not what we own, not our possessions. So let's be this is a kind of slightly dramatic way of looking at that kind of subject, really. You've very much given us an insight into your comedic influences. You spoke about some of the shows that you've watched. Who would you say your comedic heroes are and how would you describe your particular comedy style? I think my, my comedy heroes growing up, was, you know, I love Steve Coogan. Alan Partridge was a big thing for me growing up. And then Ricky Gervais, when The Office came out, it was an incredible thing. I think that changed a lot of people's perspective on what comedy was. In terms of, of live comedy... You know, I've kind of worked in the industry for the last 10 years and seen so many people be so amazing. Actually, some of the people that I just love 
that I know, I find them incredibly inspirational. And and in fact, the way they've responded to me as a producer who's just kind of dabbling in some comedy has has, has been amazing. People like you know, kind of people like Nick Helm and and and, and Dane Baptiste and and John Kearns and, and a number of other people who are kind of really inspirational people in my life, really. And in, with reference to your actual style, the, the comedians that you've just listed there, they're, they're mm. quite known for their dry wit and almost shocking wit. Would you say that that's the sort of style that, that you uh, have as well? Well, th- I suppose the thing that I'd say about what I'm doing is I'm only two years into learning how to do it. So that's that's I'm a bit of an amateur in some ways, but I think I've obviously got an advantage in producing a show and understanding how the flow of that would, would work because I have produced other forms of shows so so the style of what i am doing is very much a a, a, a neurotic jewish man which is a traditional <laughs> i was gonna say you don't have to dig too deep hopefully for that <laughs> yeah you know that one well i mean even just like a neurotic I'm about whether i turn the air con on or off at work is you know that's that that would be enough to start me but the the, the kind of that neurotic thing fed into a persona of someone who's providing a mixture of visual entertainment on the, on the screen behind him. And, and so, you know, we've all become used to TED Talks. And, and, you know, there's a comedian called James Veach who's done doing very well with some PowerPoint stuff, very different to what I do. Adam Buxton, you know, Dave Gorman, these people have been doing stuff with visuals and stand-up for a long time. So I'm, I'm kind of very much on that treadmill or that or that kind of you know that, that that version of comedy where i can mix bits but there are some bits that are very traditional stand-up as well so it's it's it's, it's I, I think it's hopefully an entertaining mix of things for an hour i can't imagine people will get bored that's my hope is is that a bit of a cop-out though when it's you when you say that you use visuals yeah, when you use visuals like doesn't that. that sort of distract from the work you're supposed to be doing as a stand-up well it's an interesting point if you view stand-up as a only one form of media of medium. So, so traditional stand-up comedy, which is a man or woman with a microphone, is the purest form of the art. The purest form of the art, and and yet, what has broken down over many many years, including obviously musical comedy, which has been around a very long time. People have been making musical comedy for for, for years, and that obviously isn't just as simple as a man with a microphone. So. I think because technology has evolved in such a way that some of those names that I mentioned, David Trent's an interesting example, you know, the manner of which they perform their comedy and the manner in which I perform my comedy, it's an integral part of the, of the, sh- of the show. So it's not necessarily an add-on. It's like this joke works because of the visual that I'm giving you on stage with me as part of the package. So it's, it's, it's kind of mixed, kind of mixed media. Howard, would you say that writing for the visual media is different from writing for broadcasting. Yeah, I mean, you know, in, in terms of kind of the differences between this and, and my job, it, it has, you know what, I'd, I'd be honest, it, it, these things aren't exclusive of each other. They mix together quite nicely. Sometimes I'll come up with something that helps me at my work when I'm thinking about stand-up and, 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 and live comedy. And sometimes I'll have something at work that helps me with my my life comedy. So it's a it's a it's a it's an interesting medley of of of, of a life, I suppose, in some ways. And 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 yeah, but there's there's something immediate about performing. You know, I could come up with a joke and do it that night. Whereas in television, obviously, it takes a very long time to get a show onto television. 
yeah, it's a, it's, I guess I'm lucky to be involved in both. Howard, thank you for joining us today. Where can your show be seen? Hey, well, we're doing it Thursday, Friday, Saturday, the 16th to 18th of August, and we're at 2 North Down in King's Cross. So, yeah, it'd be lovely to see people there. You can, I'm on the Camden Fringe website if you want to buy some tickets. And can they buy tickets at the door as well? Or is it best just to buy them in advance? Who knows? Maybe I'll be really popular and sell out, but I think you'll be okay. Well, let's hope so. (laughs) Yeah, thanks. Thanks very much. Okay. That's Howard Kane. Howard, thank you very much for joining us on The Jewish Views. And good luck with this new part of your career. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Thank you. If you would like any more information on any of the stories or indeed the guests featured on this episode of The Jewish Views, then you can always go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. And we're delighted to have in the studio with us Jennifer Jankel, Chair of the Trustees of the Jewish Music Institute. Jennifer, let's let's suppose, which is unlikely, but let's suppose that there's some people who don't know the background to the JMI, which we know is the home of Jewish music in the UK. Can you just expand a little bit about what JMI does? Yes, I'm delighted. It was actually started by Geraldine Arbach over 33 years ago in a response to a request from Brene Brett to have a music festival. And over the 30-something years, we have expanded and relaunched again in 2012. So we have many, many divisions. We have, for example, next week, we have our summer schools. We're basically about education in the Jewish world. And I'm finding that we're doing more and more interfaith work. We're taking our Jewish music out to help other people understand what being Jewish means and helping other communities understand how to live in this society in Great Britain. So we cover the educational program Anno Timpurile, which is in association with the Harrow Music Hub. Now that's really exciting. We're on about our ninth or tenth primary school and we teach accordion once a week. We have accompanists in double bass, in clarinet, in violin, in clarinet, and only top musicians. It's a very unusual program, and we have a waiting list. We do that together with Sue McCall, who's stunning. And on the back of that, Charlie Richardson from the Essex Music Hub has found us, and we are going to launch a program of education in schools, four primary schools, in Yiddish song, Jewish music in Canvey Island. Now, that'll make you all smile, because you all know who's going to go to Canvey Island, the very orthodox community. Indeed, yeah. And this is actually aimed at the non-Jewish part of the residents of Canvey Island to say, we're here too, we have a bridge with this other community, and we're going to teach Yiddish songs, so it'll be Joseph Finley teaching it. Gosh, that's quite a programme. That and is, that's all happening between now and the autumn? Yes, that's actually going to take place the end of October through November, December. That's five schools, five sessions. I think five schools might be four, depending. And that's an exciting programme. So that's one of our arms. And then 
we have my beloved late dad, Joe Loss. We, we, that's key, really, to what we do. The Joe Loss Lectureship, Dr. Ilana Webster-Kogan, she's an outstanding, dynamic, American, pretty gorgeous girl, expecting her second baby. And she's based at SOAS, and she teaches in the music department, not just Jewish music, but she's a core member of that department. Can I just find if there's a distinction between Jewish music and Israeli music? I think Israeli music is part of Jewish music. It's part of it. I think so. You know, Jewish music is a big umbrella term, isn't it? It covers all our synagogue music, all our chazanut. It covers really the life of Ernest Bloch, probably the best-known Jewish classical composer. Not to mention Klezmer as well, of course. And Klezmer. And what about those Hollywood composers? And what I'd really like to tell you about Mm -hmm. is the excitement within our educational program of our new JMI Youth Big Band, because we were looking to bring education through music to another group of young people. We're really interested in this whole world of communication. And Sam Eastman accompanied by actually Moss Fried playing at Klesmer in the Park on the 2nd of September. But before that, for the first time, we're doing a three-day workshop. We have so far 15 young kids between 11 and 19. We have drums, we have keyboard, we have brass. Sam is outstanding and he's a composer and he incorporates Jewish music to answer your question. Jewish music and jazz, it's all incorporated. So we are hoping to take this young band a long way and develop it into the future. Sounds fascinating. Yeah. It also sounds as if it's in the spirit of your father, the big band oh, part you know, of it. You're <laughs> absolutely right. I smiled when we'd done quite a lot of research about how young people respond and of course they respond to music really quickly in all its forms and when Sam came along the piece slotted into place and I realised how much in my own blood I've got of all of that big band music and the brass particularly. It's incredible isn't it how Kletzmer was one piece of music not linked to anything else, and suddenly over the years it's become incorporated into this jazz cloud, which is lovely. I think it's brilliant because you've got lots of non-Jewish musicians playing klezmer jazz. Well, the klezmer side actually are uh, JMI big band is not klezmer. It is proper Jewish jazz and a lot of it composed by Sam and we incorporate some synagogue music in that of course we're doing a concert at JW3 Mm. and also at Radlett Reform Synagogue which is very exciting. Klezmer is amazing because it's worldwide Mm. and because when you look at the fact that Alan Byrne is running our Klezfest school next week with Andreas is also from Berlin and you look at the background of Weimar Mm. and you look Mm. at the fact that JMI is now becoming I hope, more and more well-known and attracting a large audience of people to learn this wonderful klezmer music. When, when you say 
Weimar, are we talking? We're talking about cabaret? the festival. Uh, we're, we're not yes, talking no, we've about. Moved, we've moved on. But from that, that was have all we? part. But that, it was part and parcel, wasn't absolutely, it? Absolutely, yes. absolutely. Yes. And there's new cabaret now. I mean, there are new pieces being written all the time. We get approaches from people all over the world. But the Weimar festival that Alan runs is absolutely huge. And I think extends over about three weeks and he's coming over to run our Glesfest as part of next week. So we have people from all over the world. You know what I find particularly amazing about all of this is that throughout this interview you've been telling us, you've been reading off all of these different things that you've got coming up from the Jewish Music Institute and I don't think I've seen you refer to notes once so you must be very heavily involved <laughs> in, the, in the general running of the JMI. It's very telling. Well... <laughs> There is a wonderful, wonderful man. I'm going to mention his name, and that is Walter Goldsmith. He happens to be father of Rabbi Mark Goldsmith of Ailith Gardens. Without Walter, I don't think we could have existed. He's supported us in every imaginable way. And he kept calling me when he was either chair or president for a few years saying, I want you on board, I want you on board. And at that time, sadly, my husband had just died. It's about 12 years ago, maybe. My mum was still involved. And so I joined her. I'd been a trustee of Jewish music, obviously, since 1990, when my father passed away. But Walter got me on board. And Sophie Solomon joined us for the first two or three years and was a huge help in relaunching ourselves, in creating our new image, because that's what it needed. But the roots, actually, are still all there. The Joe Lost Lectureship, Klesmer in the Park, mm. the summer schools that we created. But education and, I believe, interfaith. Talking about education, do you go, have you ventured into the realms of pre-war forbidden music, the Antarctica music? Well, this or, is or an not. area that I was going to mention next because that's Michael Hass's expertise. Well, he's absolutely mm. brilliant and he heads that whole division. In fact, this year we held the first Jewish music fair. We took it over from Aleph and we asked all sorts of wonderful people to come and talk. And we had Stephen Isilis talking to Valerie Schulte, who is our joint president with Michael Grade. And Michael Haas came over and his lecture was highly supported. And we have a whole, they now have their own web pages, charity and so on. And of course, we support it throughout, but they are the experts. Indeed. We act as a sort of bridge and a support. Thank you very much for being with us. We could go on talking about this for hours, well, but thank you for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. And now it's time for our Rabbinic Thought for the Week. And this time it comes from Rabbi David Mason of Muswell Hill United Synagogue. So this week's parasha is uh, Shoftim. And I'm going to take one of the bits of Parashat Shoftim, which talks about the appointing of king, the idea of a monarchy in the Torah, in the Jewish religion. Now, I've been reading recently a book by Amos Elon called The Pity of It All, about the history of Jews of Germany. And the 1848 and 49 revolutions in the German states 
have many Jews involved working for liberalizing forces, greater democratic foundations of the German states as opposed to the Austrian and Prussian empires. And then, and then of course, Bismarck comes along, but also has Jews to support him and his unifying forces, which watered down democracy. So what does the Torah say? Where should we be? Well, it seems to be saying monarchy. A kin is really important. But it's actually more vague than that. Because if you look at the words, the Torah says at some point, you, the Jewish people, will say, let us have a king. Almost as if it's a voluntary decision. But then it says, if that's the case, you should appoint a king, almost as a commandment. And rabbis and Jewish scholars have been, over the ages, split as to whether there is an absolute commandment to appoint a king over an ideal Jewish state, Jewish country. One of the most interesting bridges is Rabbi Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, a rabbi in the 19th century in the Russian Empire. And he opened up what might be a more liberal approach here within the text. His idea was that it isn't clear that every country wants the same structure to rule. Some would be lost without a monarchy. Others would require people to make decisions as to how to define the leadership, i.e. a more democratic concept. And that's really interesting. It might be that the Torah's ideal is possibly monarchy, but it's open up to other possibilities for sovereignty to be constructed. And there has been a historic movement, maybe from considering space, land, boundaries as relevant. Empires were based on large expanses of land with different peoples being subject to the ruler. Whereas today we have developed more of an awareness in many countries in the world of people and their opinions and what they have to say in how the government and how sovereignty is constructed. And so those are some interesting thoughts in looking at the Torah's idea of monarchy and how we've got to where we are today when for many countries democracy is the way forward. Thank you to Rabbi David Mason of the Muswell Hill United Synagogue for our Thought of the Week. And that's it for this edition of The Jewish Views. Thank you to our guests, Simon Johnson of the Jewish Leadership Council, Howard Cohen, the comedian, and Jennifer Jankel of JMI. Thank you also to our producer, Sue Greenberg, and indeed to you at home for listening. You can always listen to this episode or any previous episode of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk. Please remember to subscribe to us in your podcast application. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News. From me, Diana Toman. From me, Phil Dave. And from me, Tony Honigberg. Do join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye for now. <laughs>